So thank you so much, Stephanie Davis Arai, the founder of Transgender Trend, for talking to me on my inaugural attempt at podcasting. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So before we get into the details of your award, which we're going to talk about in a bit, can we start with how you came to found Transgender Trend and when you did it and what led you to do it? It was in 2015 and I started, I work with parents and teachers. I teach communication skills. Um, I run courses, workshops. I've worked with parents one-to-one. So I've been doing that for a couple of decades before starting Transgender Trend. And I, I wrote a weekly parenting blog and I noticed stories that suddenly appeared in the press about very young children being transitioned in schools. And it was immediate alarm bells for me. And what was interesting was that I was very immersed in the world of sort of parenting advice. It's a huge, it's a huge industry. And nobody else who, there were various quite sort of famous within that world, um, parenting coaches and various parenting courses and websites and, and, and nobody was talking about this. So that this was really unusual that um, there was radio silence on this issue. Whereas I worked in a primary school for eight years and every new thing that came along, whether it was brain gym, was a, you know, there, there, there were certain things that, or diagnoses. So um, um, oppositional behavioral defiance disorder for example which you which used to be called being naughty there are all sorts of different sort of diagnoses of children medications for children um and and sort of educational fads really that that came and went and every single one was just you know fiercely debated and nobody felt afraid of disagreeing strongly with any of these things um and, uh, but, but on this issue, this sudden emergence of transgender children uh, went without comment and n- nobody was discussing it. So that was a huge um, red flag warning for me. It was like, why does nobody go here? And I wrote, so I wrote on my parenting blog at the beginning of 2015, a piece called Is My Child Transgender? Where I sort of examined this issue uh, and I remember at the time feeling really afraid to publish it, really frightened. I thought, I'll lose my followers. This, this is a political issue. It's, I've received the message very clearly, we don't talk about this. Um, and I'm going to talk about it. Uh, and I got such a response from that, of parents really grateful that um, somebody had raised questions about, about this. And... I, and I realised, and, and this idea had begun, you know, I think at least a year previously, the idea, had, so I, it was what I wanted to write about because I, I found it so scary what was happening because the advice to tell, you know, like a four, five, six-year-old boy that for the parents to say, yes, you're a girl, if he, if he was expressing that belief, was just the worst parenting advice. It's parenting advice that goes against every any other sort of parenting advice you'd read. Um, and I really wanted to write about it and examine what was happening. And according to parent, you know, put it, place it within parenting trends over the last couple of decades. And uh, and and I did write another couple of pieces for the 
for the blog. Uh, and then I thought, I have to do a separate website for this subject because it's huge. And I was worried about, you know, so many aspects of it, the, 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 the um, development of the child, the um, medical treatments. And I did more and more research and I thought, and I found that parents were looking online for information if their own child was saying, you know, if their little boy was saying, I'm a girl or girl saying, I'm a boy, which is not as usual in that age group. But Parents were finding only ideology-based information online, which was from groups in the UK. Uh, Mermaids is the biggest group, um, Gendered Intelligence, Stonewall. So it was a political ideological approach. You, you, you just agree with the child. They're trying, you know, they're trying, maybe transgender. They can always change back if they change their minds, but it's important to affirm the child's gender identity. And so I thought I, I, I need to put a resource together for parents and I have a responsibility in my position to do so. Um, I couldn't, you know, I felt like I couldn't carry on writing as if this subject didn't exist or wasn't very important. And that, that um, yeah, I just, had, I just had a responsibility to speak. I, I didn't really think much beyond that at the time. When, when you say that, that, this advice, this to affirm a child's gender identity goes against all other kind of parenting advice. Can you say more about that? Well, it it, exceptional? it's telling the child an untruth. So normally, <clears throat> if you think about a young child, we are constantly as parents affirming reality for them. We are, con you know, the child says, mommy, it's raining. We say, yes, it's raining. Or... Mummy, there's a cat. Yes, there's a cat. Constantly, constantly, we affirm that child's reality because, or, or the, the, we affirm that reality, that child's recognition of reality, because the child is developing um, to understand the difference between fantasy and reality. And we may sometimes affirm an unreality. So the child dresses up as a as a dinosaur we say oh you're a brilliant strong dinosaur we you know but we we do it on a level where we know that's make believe and pretend uh but we're we're in real life we affirm that we affirm a child's reality all the time and that's important we think we do it unconsciously don't we we don't do it sort of oh this is a learning opportunity <laughs> we just do it um and but and yet in this case we're affirming an unreality um, that's really basic and fundamental to the child and, and, and what that child is, either male or female. And so it disrupts that child's understanding of what is real and, and what is make-believe, what is fantasy. And it's very, very easy to do that and to convince a child and was to indoctrinate a child into this false version of reality because children don't know the difference between or don't understand boys and girls as two opposite sexes at that age. They understand boys and girls as stereotypes. Right. So the, the you know the kids who wear dresses and have their hair in bun long hair in bunches or whatever that they're the girls and the and the, and, and the children with the short hair are the boys, um, and that's become more and more. Um, true over the last decade at least where the sort of gendered marketing to children I think this is a big part of the fertile soil that this has landed in 
has become more and more extreme. So girls live in a pink world, boys live in a blue world. Uh, whereas when I was growing up in the 70s, all children wore brown jumpers. And, you know, lots of girls had short hair because, you know, knits. <laughs> you know, we were a lot more practical in those days, like short hair didn't take as much shampoo or as much looking up as so. And now you, you, you quite, you know, it's quite rare to see a girl with short hair. It, it, it's um, the, the, the stereotypes are, and I, I wonder why this is that, that this is allowed in children's marketing. Uh, but anyway, so children understand um, boys and girls as stereotypes until around age seven, a child will accept that a, you know, a boy is a girl because he has long hair and he's wearing a dress. It's not because the child is progressive in their views or more accepting or more inclusive. It's because the child literally believes that. So, it, yeah, there's lots yeah. of reasons why. But I, I think actually the, the, the other thing is the adultification of the child. So any approach towards a child that treats a child as, as an adult is potentially harmful. Because that child does, you know, the, the four-year-old boy, for example, does not understand that the adult is affirming his gender identity. Right. As far as the four-year-old boy is concerned, mummy says I'm a girl. Right. And you know, that, we have to understand a child's level of understanding. That's right, and that and that their and that their understandings of gender change with their cognitive development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't understand yet that male and female are stable categories that don't change. Right. Just as Which, a tree is a stable category, you know, it doesn't change into a, into a flower. And it's interesting to me that you say that in 2015, this was already impossible to talk about mm -hmm. because I really didn't understand social transition as a concept until a couple of years ago, even after I'd been writing about gender for a long time. And I, and I also didn't understand that that's what was being kind of offered to our family by people at the school or the pediatrician. Um, I, I didn't know that term and I didn't know the implications. And then as I've started to become more, mm -hmm. more interested in it, I see on the one hand, um, some websites, the, the American equivalent of, of, you know, mermaids and Stonewall saying you must affirm and socially transition is the only way to preserve a child's sort of mental health. But then if you read, you know, what little scientific literature there is on it, it says it's, it's contested, we don't know much about it. Um, and we must have known even less in 2015. So I'm, I'm curious, A, if you, think, if you think the UK was sort of ahead of the US or I, or I was just blind, um, I'm, was this happening there first? And, and also why, why 2015? And, and it, it interests me because I was listening yesterday to um, a podcast called The Unspeakable and uh, with Megan Daum and the guest with John, was Jonathan Haidt who runs this thing called the Heterodox Academy. And they were talking about 2014 as the year when many things happen to launch us toward this kind of 
fragility that young people are suffering from where you know they can't handle any pushback they can't handle any viewpoint diversity um, where everything has to have a trigger warning they counted that as as the year when there were various cultural changes in the united states that started us in earnest on this path and so it makes me wonder if you were seeing this in uh, beginning in 2015 what was happening before then and what was happening do you know what was happening in terms of you know was it all coming from mermaid stonewall gendered intelligence was some of it coming from the actual clinicians at tavistock what was what do you think was swirling around to create that environment? That's a that's a really big question. I know lots of things going on. Don't forget though, um, fourth wave now in the states was the first. Yeah. Um, in early two thousand and fifteen, and I didn't. I was working on the website, getting the website together, which I wanted to be a resource of evidence based information for parents to counter the ideological messages they were getting everywhere else and I was working on that in 2015 and the website was published in November of that year but fourth wave now had been going since the start of the year in the US so um, I think um, in the UK um, there'd been a lot of work going on um, behind the scenes with policymakers from the um, transgender organizations now Stonewall added the T to the LGB in 2015. There were various TV programs that came out late 2014 directed at children about transitioning. And then again in early 2015. Um, but I think what was happening at the Tavistock Clinic, which is the, it's the, it, it's the only, uh, well, they've got satellite clinics now, but it's the only, a clinic for children and adolescents in England and Wales. Scotland have their own clinic. And they started a puberty blockers trial. They started in 2010, 2011. Um, and they, that, up to that point, the Tavistock is, is renowned for its sort of psychotherapeutic work, um, therapy, essentially. And they, with children with gender dysphoria, and up to that point, really, it was sort of 50 a year or, bit or, or under, very young kids, mostly boys. And they started to, they, the puberty blockers were, were um, given at age 16. So the model, and this is the model we know that, you know, gender dysphoria starts early if it persists into adolescence, at age 16, for the most serious cases that have persisted that long, then puberty blockers are available. The, the child's already developed um, uh, uh, reproductive capabilities by that age. Um, and that changed with the puberty blockers trial. So that um, put into effect in 2011 and puberty blockers were, the, the age was reduced to uh, first of all, age 12, and then it was kind of stage two of puberty, which is just when puberty starts, and that could be age 10. And the pressure on the Tavistock to do that came from mermaids, 
um, and also another organization called the Gender Identity Research and Education Society, GIRES. And in fact, GIRES, I think, were the earliest and have the biggest, have had the biggest impact on the NHS in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and another group called Gendered Intelligence, but it was mostly mermaids. And um, the CEO of Mermaids had taken her own son for a, um, uh, an operation in Thailand on his 16th birthday, which is essentially castration. Uh, and, and gone to, I think, Boston, I think this is Dr. Spack in Boston for early puberty blockers. And so I think the, the um, that was that was sort of pivotal, really, because really we're looking at the most extreme parent in the UK, because after that, you know, you can't get that surgery in Thailand now until age 18. And it was illegal in this country. And so that's the sort of most extreme uh, reaction to a child with gender dysphoria. And and Susie Green became CEO of Mermaids. And and I think a lot of the messaging was you have to affirm your child, they'll commit suicide if you don't, Um, this treatment is life-saving. And there was huge pressure on the Tavistock from Mermaids and Mermaids' parents who were having to go abroad to get puberty blockers. So really we have an activist lobby group influencing the health service. And, um, and that's been the situation. So, I mean, all of that happened, but I think on a broader scale, the, the trans lobby groups were working with media, with the press, with the um, government to establish the, that narrative we were talking about that came so, becomes so strong and so embedded that if you question it, you look you look like the extremist. Yeah. So that was happening behind the scenes. And I don't know if you've seen the Denton's report. Um, I don't think so. That's a report that, that sort of give tip, gives tips on how to make an, a, a potentially publicly unpopular movement achieve success. So things like you pin it to a more popular movement, so gay rights. And it's also in schools, I think, tied to smashing gender stereotypes or anti-bullying or, you know, so more popular cause that nobody could disagree with, Um, but particularly gay rights, which is why it was important to add the T to the LGB. Um, And to do it behind the scenes, not publicise it, so the public didn't know what was going on until it was kind of a done deal. So you see all of those sort of tactics, I think, have gone on in the UK behind the scenes. It really strikes me that, you know, that the the person, as you say, the person whose child perhaps had the most extreme gender dysphoria or who took the most extreme route to treating gender dysphoria, if we think of transition as, you know, one path um, to treat it, and then imposing that onto all of the other children in that general category of either gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria, that that something that may or may not be appropriate for anyone. I've I have no you know I've been studying this intensely for the past year after kind of ignoring it, <laughs> dancing around it, and I I haven't landed anywhere in. I haven't landed on any one thought about it 
but I do know that, you know, it is one of the most radical things you can do to your body and to do it to a child's body is very serious, but perhaps there is some case where it's appropriate. I don't know, but it would be so rare that if we're mm -hmm. orienting all of the trainings and all of the teaching and all of the medicine to the rarest cases, then it obscures the needs of everyone else who falls into this broader category. And when you have a 4,000 or 5,000% increase in kids now in that category and, and everything is still geared toward this tiny minority, um, it, you're it going to get a lot. You're going to get a lot of false positives. You're going to get a lot of false positives, which, which we're seeing. And of course, we don't we don't know how how many. But that really strikes me that you know I think historically it has been important for activist groups to affect policy. It's how we got homosexuality out of the DSM. You know, there are there are places for activism in medicine and for medicine to evolve. But in but in this case, it's really an issue of when it was depathologizing homosexuality, it applied to everyone under the, you know, everyone who was same-sex attracted, whereas normalizing the, this intense medication of gender dysphoria is not appropriate, it would seem, for, for the vast majority of people. And we don't have good enough data to say that, but it, it makes me, but one assumes from the detransitioners speaking up and over here, this kind of wild west mentality of not properly evaluating children. And I, I, I do wonder what you, how you know that gender dysphoric children as well as extremely, extremely um, gender, dysphoric, gender dysphoric and gender nonconforming children exist. So what, how should we treat them if, if social transition and the medical, medical transition is not the appropriate way? Well, you know, I was that child. I, I was- oh, I didn't know that. I was that boy, you know, I, and I, I it's, it's why I like your book. It's such a great history of the tomboy and it's fascinating the labels that we use. So I sort of ignore the gender woo-woo in the book. I, I actually- yeah, thank so. you. Uh, well, it's agnostic, and I like that. You know, it's not saying this is right and this is wrong. It's giving us actually a history of the words and terms we use about these girls who don't conform to the sex stereotypes they're supposed to conform to. And really, you know, for me, tomboy is not a word I would ever use. I, you know, I hated that word when I was when I was a boy. I was a real boy. I wasn't one of these pretend tomboys. I was actually a boy. And, um, but actually my, you know, my feeling is that, you know, she's not a tomboy. She's not any kind of boy. She's a girl and behaving like a child and like a, like, you know, it's, it's more exciting to her go and have adventures and climb trees and play with dolls, clearly. Um, so, all of those words I'd question, but it interests me how we need a word and then you can get away with it. So as long as society can have this word, tomboy, trans boy, whatever it is, then she has permission to, to behave in that way and otherwise she doesn't. So, it, you know, it just fascinates me. Language, you know, communication is my thing, but 
but um yeah it, it, it's um I was that child so uh so I think in the 70s when I was growing up I my um parents just bought me clothes from the boys catalogue I was made to wear dresses and I had to it was so interesting the difference because I had to wear a tunic to school which I hated but I would never ever have thought to question it to to um I hated the fact that I had to wear a skirt and it meant that I was physically restricted I couldn't do somersaults because the boys would see my knickers I'm really you know and I feel you know skirts are so you know really impact on girls physical movement in the world but anyway I would never have thought to um demand to wear trousers I would never have um wanted my parents validation they went ahead and bought me the clothes that I wanted and also sometimes made me wear dresses but mostly they let me get on with it and and, um they didn't have the time to be that interested um in in you know what my identity they we wouldn't have termed it as an identity um it was seen as I think for certainly for girls fairly normal as long as I became a young lady when I was you know hit puberty which I had a huge struggle with with all of that Mm. which is why I really get girls who are transitioning um yeah with the development of 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 my body I was awful awful had a terrible time with puberty and adolescence and young womanhood um but it's certainly in the you know parenting parents were too busy to pay that much attention um we didn't have this huge focus on children's feelings and one thing is the parenting culture the parenting advice culture sees children as being born whole um, with a fully developed self and the parent's job is to facilitate the expression of that self and so you get parents following the child and there's been a reversal in the child adult relationship so the the child is the wise one the parent follows the child and and this model of parenting has really um, seeped in over last probably one or two decades and it goes right across the board it's not a middle class thing it's you know certainly in the UK it's sort of across the board and so parents are encouraged to listen to the child which I think is great because we weren't listening to at all so it's it's good that children are listened to more now Um, but listening to a child doesn't mean agreeing with them Parents still have the responsibility to be the adult and to put the child right if they're wrong or, or, or guide them or whatever, say no, you know, whatever. And the parenting advice is, is very much sort of non-combative, non, you know, non-authoritative. And I think that's, that, that plays a big part in the difference we're seeing now in how parents approach this issue that the child knows who they really are right. <laughs> and that, that you know that that you know that they do they do they know exactly who they are they know exactly what they want they know exactly what they want to do and they will make a big fuss if they can't um but therefore when a child has no idea who they really are 
um, as a, an eight-year-old or a 15-year-old or a, an 18-year-old or an adult. So the child knows who sort of has that sort of understanding. And again, it's about not treating the child as an adult, recognising that that child knows who they are as a four-year-old and that we're the adults and we do have more life experience and knowledge and understanding and, and it is our job to guide the child and help the child and not assume that the child knows everything. And I've seen this happen with, I don't know if this happened, did you have in the States, the Indigo child? I don't think so. Mm -mm. Google it, Google it. Because when I was, um, when my children were little and um, when I was working in a primary school, there were various um, sort of trends going on. The first one was my child has an old soul. Mm -hmm. So my child is particularly spiritually wise. They have an old, born with an old soul. And that morphed into my child is an indigo child. And the indigo child was especially uh, spiritually endowed in some way. The child uh -huh. is very, very spiritual. And you can see how, you know, as parents, it's, it's very human, isn't it? We put our own stuff onto our children. We have to be a bit careful about doing that. But that was a big thing that was going on at that time. And it was, the trans child reminds me of that, the indigo child, the child who is sort of outside their culture is, 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 is wise, is born wise, is born with a fully developed self and knows everything. And the parent sort of picks up wisdom from the child rather than the other way around. And, so and then, can you talk a little bit then about your own evolution did you really believe you were a boy? And um, did you have a sense of like, I'm in the wrong category or I'm in the wrong body or was it not about body? It was just about, I mean, and then how, how did you get through the horror of puberty and young womanhood? And, and, and what has stayed with you from that time and, and what has changed? Another giant question. I can only ask giant questions apparently. Well, it, it's funny, you hear, you hear people say, I didn't know I was trans, I didn't have the language then. Luckily, I didn't have the language. I didn't have the language of identity and, and trans, and I didn't have those concepts. So for me, um, and again, because I was very young, all I had was, I'm a boy, and I fiercely was a boy. Which, you know, which means that I really wanted to be a boy. I wanted to be seen as a boy. I wanted to be able to do the things that boys did. I had, um, you know, I, 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 an absolute contempt for girly stuff and girly girls. Um, and I, I think I, I, I saw, you know, people would describe girls as tomboys and I had... <laughs> contempt for that that's not being a real boy so my feeling that you know now I would be diagnosed with extreme gender dysphoria mm -hmm. I would be seen as a child that would persist and I did and that's the thing I persisted until up until puberty and then when my body started developing I found it excruciating excruciatingly embarrassing because I you can you can be gender neutral as a child straight up and down and then you start you know getting a bit of a you know big bottom and thighs and 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 you know you start the girl's body I think 
betrays you, doesn't it? You, it grows in ways, and, and boys' bodies become sort of stronger and bigger, but they don't go out and in like, you know, with breasts and hips like women, girls' bodies do. Um, you're really exposed as female at a time when I wasn't ready to be at all. So I went through the, all the eating disorders, um, sort of attempts at self-harm, which was not really because it wasn't really done in those days. I didn't really know how to do it. Um, but, and, and you know, yeah, it, was, it struggled with eating disorders for years, years. And, um, um, and, and really I can, you know, that was an attempt to control my body. And I see the, um, you know, becoming trans as another way, it's just another way, you know, anorexia, bulimia, self-harm, all of those ways that girls try to stop becoming women now have another, have, have a different answer, um, which in, involves, you know, literally changing your body with medication and then possible surgery to, to, to change, you know, to, to, to kill that girl that you hate so much, yeah. that has betrayed you and become somebody, become that boy that you, you think is, is um, liberating and, and what, you, what you really want, who you really want to be. I absolutely get it. Yeah. And, uh, and also it's what you just said, it's illuminating because I've been talking to so many people, parents and, and some detransitioners who struggled with eating disorders. And I, and I had assumed that I had never, I had never seen an eating disorder as a, a way to manage gender dysphoria as a way to, I had always assumed that um, gender dysphoria was kind of a symptom of the eating disorder rather than the other way around. But in fact, they are, they, I, I suppose in, in some cases, they they're intimately related with this attempt to control the body. But the, the interesting thing and what I've been really um, trying to write about with this issue of diagnostic overshadowing of, of only focusing on gender dysphoria is that I think the clinicians truly believe that if you transition a child and therefore fix the gender dysphoria, that all those other things will go away. And, and, and maybe in some, in some cases, I have heard of people saying like, yeah, I did get better, at least temporarily, because there are no real long-term studies. And, and I suppose that's what makes this issue so hard is so many people are saying, but it, but it worked, you know, but, but, but actually killing the girl with, with drugs and surgery liberated me the way I want. And maybe they can't understand what they gave up and um, in terms of fertility or lifespan or general health. And, and maybe they also don't know about people like you. I mean, that, that's, I guess, one of, one of the other issues is that it seems to be I need an immediate fix and no one is willing to teach children how to sit with discomfort and no one is telling them, look at all these people who felt the exact same way you did. And now I've met so many, I didn't realize you were one of them, but obviously in researching my book, I met many and 
they were mostly older women with the technology wasn't available. And the younger versions of them that I met were trans because that technology existed. I don't think they were unhappy about what they'd done, um, but they also had never tried to live in their, in their bodies or, or not for very long anyway. I think you, you know, you make it, I, I'm, I'm sort of quite okay that people make a pact with their health, with their lives, that we know that there are health implications for, you know, this treatment. We don't know all of them because it's so new, but we recognise that there are health issues created by and obviously there would be with this very, I mean, it is extreme treatment. You're giving your body the hormones for the, for the wrong sex. And then you're, um, you know, having various surgeries, none of which is, none of which is simple. And you may have a shortened lifespan. You may have a greater risk of heart attacks or strokes or whatever. And we don't know all of those yet, but we can assume that your health will be, um, you know, that there'll be great imp harmful implications for your health of going down this route. And I can understand that an adult is capable of making that pact and saying, okay, I accept all that, accept the reality of it, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I will make my bed and lie in it and, and take those consequences with eyes fully open. But to do that, you have to accept biological reality. And the problem with this movement is that it doesn't. It's a sex de denialist movement where the treatment is based from the start on this sort of nebulous concept of gender identity and a denial that bio biological sex, sex even exists. It's, it's on a spectrum. It's a social construct. We've made it up. Yeah. And I think unless you, and, and this is, Again, the, the issue that really concerns me when it comes to children who haven't developed those, that understanding, that you know, um, capability of really an analysing the messages from this movement or from the gender clinic or from the school, all of the messages are coming out or online, the messages are coming everywhere to children that really biological sex is just something that some somebody arbitrarily assigns to you at birth, but your gender identity is your true authentic self. It's really you. And in fact, the reality is, you know, being a boy or a girl isn't who you are, it's what you are. You're either male or female, you're born that way. And if there's no acceptance of that, if that's a transphobic dog whistle, as we're being told, then children don't have a basis of reality on which to make those decisions. And I don't think children are capable of making those decisions, no matter how mature they are. They don't have the life experience and the understanding and the cognitive development, really, to, to make those kind of life, completely life-changing decisions. Whereas an adult, I think, yeah, make that pact if that's what is going to make you the happiest or most comfortable in living your life, fine. But... You know, the brain, the teenage brain can't weigh risks and, and you know, consequences. And, and that isn't fully developed till age 25. And I think you, you said earlier about what sort of treatment um, should be there. And I talked about parenting. 
you know you, you don't you don't pay attention you know the thing that the parent shows the most interest in the child will continue and whether that interest is shown in a negative or a positive way it's what gets the parent's attention will continue it's a basic you know sort of parenting 101 so you don't make a big deal of it so, you know any issue that becomes an obsession with a child whether it's eating whether it's you know, hitting or you don't make a big deal of it. You, you know, you're you're quite matter of fact about it. You stop it if it's, you know, if it, if it's violent or whatever. But you, you don't make a big deal of it. You, you don't give it the attention. Um, yeah. So we're doing the opposite. We're doing the absolute. But as far as clinics are con- concerned and treatment, you know, the, the the old model of watchful waiting, which could improve, which could involve um some sort of therapy or family therapy or developmentally appropriate uh, work with, with the child or with the family um but otherwise leave the child alone that model was never shown to be harmful so why did it change and under that model of course around 80 percent desisted because no adults were making a big fuss about it and and transsexual was seen as an outcome. So it was developmentally appropriate. It treated children as children. Uh, it didn't fix them into an identity um, uh, um, prematurely, whereas of course calling a child transgender does. And, and the, the least likely outcome was a transsexual outcome. And we, we know that the most likely outcome was being gay for the, these boys and slightly less of a percentage for girls but um and and so there was nothing wrong with that model at all and yet yeah it's been replaced with this gender affirmative model which is untested and experimental and hey presto we have a study out a few weeks ago showing that children who are socially transitioned the desistance rate is what six percent something like was it used to be Mm -hmm. uh, eight 80. So we're creating a persistence by social by affirming and socially transitioning children. So, so why 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 would we do that? Well, I think the the assumption and and an argument that's you know I think important to consider that I hear from from adults, especially adults who call themselves transsexuals and accept their biological sex, but also from the activist side of you know, the assumption that it's a worse outcome is is offensive to them, and that um, and that watchful waiting is not uh, neutral. But neither is social transition, and and I do think medicating. I think we should be able to agree that medicating is a worse outcome. That 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 you know, you're not just it's not just some plastic surgery but it is, you know, disrupting your entire endocrine system. And, and one of the, I think, problems with the way children are learning about this is that many are learning to see puberty as purely aesthetic and that they should just make their aesthetic choice and that it's harmful to go through the wrong puberty. And I was interested when you said that originally at Tavistock, you had to wait till 16. And, and was that to ensure that you're, you had reproductive capability? I mean, were, were they considering that? 
I think so. And I think also just to make sure that children were sure and were true to sisters. Yeah. Um, to give them enough time to experience adolescence, puberty and adolescence. So they had some idea of what it meant to be a man or a woman rather than a boy or a girl. So they were out yeah. of childhood. And that makes absolute sense that um, because adolescence is such crucial age where you're discovering your well you're consciously discovering your sexual orientation let's say you're developing sexually so you you have an idea of what it is to be um a, a sexual being rather than a child so at least you have some experience you have some years of of, of experiencing that and things change so much during adolescence. You're you're really growing up, so that you know that that makes sense. But to get a child who has really just started the the physical development of puberty very very early, a child has no idea yet what it means to be a sexual being, and 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 and. Hasn't, hasn't started on that journey from childhood to adulthood, which is what adolescence is. Right. And That's supposed... what puberty is. Puberty is about becoming mm. an adult. It's not mm. about which characteristics you have, you know, which. And puberty, you know, puberty is difficult. Puberty is, and adolescence, you know, we know that, we remember it, don't we? And for most children, it's not, it's not a completely smooth ride. And, and, you know, nobody promised it would be, did they? I mean, it, it, you are literally moving from childhood to adulthood. You know, why would that be easy? Uh, there's so much going on at that time. The, 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 it is the most critical period of development in your, in, in your life, really, isn't it? it? And so to interfere with that critical development stage on all levels, psychological and physical, um, seems to me to be really playing with fire that you 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 can't disrupt a child's puberty it 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 it, it just seems to me to be an ethical thing and that but these um adolescents you know girls really believe that they will be going through boy puberty I mean you hear kids saying this and they and the thing is they won't you, you, you need those sex hormones for every single part of your body, your skin, your hair, your organs, your bones, your brain, every, not just secondary sex characteristics. You need those, that surge of sex hormones. You don't get them. And then what you get instead is, is, the, is, is the wrong sex hormones for your body that are not doing what your body is needing. But, you know, it produces sort of some secondary sex characteristics of the opposite sex, but they, it doesn't put you through the opposite sex puberty. You're not gonna, you know, if you're, if you're female, you're not gonna develop sperm. If you're male, you're not gonna develop eggs. So it's like we're creating a, a new kind of adult who's never been through puberty. And, and that, that seems to me to be, you know, that's way beyond what medicine should be doing. And what is the justification for that? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a very powerful technology that we haven't really considered the implications mm -hmm. of, and we're not thinking of it that way. So I, I'm curious, you know, once you figured this out and you figured it out long before many of the people figuring it out now, and, and 
you know, I think I probably to a certain extent deliberately didn't figure it out because people were telling me in 2017 that something was amiss in this narrative. And I was kind of like, oh, but I'm going to do this project and it's going to be agnostic, as you said, and it's going to be um, I'm going to put this, these ideas out there and, and people will probably be able to read like, hmm, I don't know about this, you know, without me saying something is wrong and without me having to, I hadn't read the desistance literature. I, I hadn't read the literature about what it does to your body. I was, you know, I was, I was assuming that um, trans child was a, a discrete category with boundaries that one could ascertain and I didn't I didn't realize that you know and I also didn't realize there were these I I didn't fully understand the the difference between the cohorts and I think more importantly the tremendous overlap between gender dysphoria and sexuality whether that is because of autogynophilia you know a little later or because of the children who are likely to be gay but obviously not all of them, you know, not all of the early onset gender dysphoric kids grew up to be gay, but a lot of them did. And I didn't understand that overlap. I didn't go there, um, but you did. And you figured this out long ago, seven years ago now. So I'm wondering about what the last seven years have been like in terms of the reaction. I know it's another huge question. And then I want to get into the award because it it seems like at least in the UK, you guys get to fight about it. Whereas here it's, it's almost, it's, and you have a strong left objection and a feminist objection. And here the whole thing is painted as left, right, which is what I've been working to try to get people to understand is that it's, there are plenty of people on the left who disagree with the kind of orthodoxy of this approach and who wanna ask questions or dissent or learn more. So what has the reaction been? How have you handled it? And then we'll talk about this moment where we feel like maybe we're seeing a shift with the award. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I got, I, you know, had um, a lot of harassment and um, awful, awful accusations over these years, which is, which is really hard actually, because I, sometimes I think if I if I was working and I see myself as advocating for the non-conforming kids, for the the bullied ones, the the ones who are, you know, outside the group, as I was, I mean, you know, as I was when I was a child, never quite got the rules of the girls' group, never quite got included or accepted in the girls' group, um, and I tried very hard. Um, but you know, the autistic kids, the kids from care homes, the lesbian and gay kids who are bullied, um, all of those kids who don't fit in, that's who I advocate for. And, but if I said to me, you know, people say to me, you know, what is it you do? What is it you write about? What are you, what are you talking about at this, in this interview? And, I, and I'll say something vague, like, oh, I write about children, I write for parents. And I don't, I find myself self-censoring because I know that they may instantly judge me as a bigot, transphobic, and I, I don't want to go there. 
So I, I, and I, you know, I've been called that so much. I've been accused of wanting to kill trans kids, um, push them to suicide, awful, awful stuff, erase them. And I thought, you know, I think, it, you know, if I was working on, say, you know, children with disabilities, I could talk to everybody about it and, and people might get bored with, but they would listen, they, you know, they wouldn't judge me. They'd think I was doing good work. But on this issue, because it's so highly politicised, that, that 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 I find that quite hard, even amongst sort of friend friends. That you know, I I I I sense that sometimes people are sort of sitting on the fence, seeing which way the wind blows, not quite sure whether I'm a bigot or not, mm. and they'll just wait a bit longer to see. <laughs> um, I've had, I've experienced losing a, a whole gang of, of friends mm. who suddenly thought I was a bigot. Um, and I, I think it was when I, when I published, I published, wrote and published Schools Guide in the early 2018. And that's when the bullying from the main trans groups and, the, and their followers really, really kicked off. And there's been a few things that have happened over the years that have made me think, uh, that, that feel like giving up. Because, and the other thing is um, working and getting myself into positions where I'm working um, on you know, round tables with, with government groups and um, Quality and Human Rights Commission over here and groups like that and facing the hostility or going to conferences in order to speak out um, and having to force myself to speak so many times being absolutely terrified of standing up and speaking in a room where I can feel the hostility from everybody else in the room, who immediately judges me as a bigot for asking that question or making that point. And I've sort of forced myself through those barriers to do it every time because I think it's really important because I think there's always people who are there who may not say anything, but are listening and, so, so yeah, in that sense, it's been um, difficult, you know, it's sort of facing fears and, 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 and doing things that are really uncomfortable. But what I found is over the last two or three years, um, I've started to be listened to by, the, you know, policymakers, people in positions of, of, of influence. Um, which is so lovely. <laughs> it's, um, oh, the feeling, you know, it's such a relief because I, I, think, I think you get yourself ready for hostility and that's not a, it's not a good way to live. Um, you, you, yeah, you're constantly in sort of defence mode or I think we're, we're on the back foot. We, we've been on the back foot from the start because the narrative has already been established. Um, so... It's been it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a challenge, and then now I'm seeing the changes. So it's sort of um, Department for Education guidance. Um, the um, I was an in, uh, intervener in the Kirabel Judicial Review, and and that case has had global implications. Even though the the Tavistock won the appeal, but the evidence in the first case was so important and, 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 and stands, it, it, it hasn't been denied. Um, and then the 
commissioning of the of the um, in, in the UK we have the CAS review of the Tavistock Clinic, and this is an independent. And before that, we had um, actually um, things that were published on transgender trend first. So Michael Biggs' investigation into the puberty blockers trial, for example, led to uh, coverage on our flagship news program, Newsnight. And then there were whistleblowers at the Tavistock who um, the Newsnight also covered um, uh, whistleblowers, um, concerns of clinicians, which were echoing my concerns. So more and more, my concerns were being echoed by those in the know who were working at you know, the Tavistock and independent research. So there was a research, um, a sort of uh, review of all studies from Carl Hennigan, who's professor of uh, evidence-based medicine at Oxford. So he brought out an independent review. Um, and every time it's an independent review, it's found that there isn't the evidence to support this treatment is, is, yeah. is safe. So the Hillary Cass uh, review of the, the NHS um, clinic, uh, the Tavistock clinic, an interim report was published um, a few months ago. And again, it echoed all the concerns that I've been voicing over the years. And so I think my voice has become more respected um, and it's been uh, vindicated by, by various things. And then the health minister announced um, an urgent inquiry into the use of hormone, hormones for children. And so, and then the award. <laughs> yeah, tell us the name. I wrote it down, but tell, tell us the name of the award and, and how that came to, was that a complete surprise to you? Yes, although I, 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 you know, I got the email a month or so back. So I knew, I knew about it, but yeah, yeah. who'd have thought it? Um, you know, certainly when I started and certainly. Um, tell, tell us the name of the award first. Okay, the award is the British Empire Medal. And I do actually get a medal on a ribbon. Uh, British Empire Medal as founder of Transgender Trend for services to children in the Queen's Jubilee Honours birthday, Jubilee birthday honours list. So it's a huge honour. Absolutely huge. And, I would never, ever in my life, I mean, actually, no matter what I did, I would never, ever imagine that I would be the recipient of, of, of a Queen's Birthday Honour, ever. But particularly for working in this area, which is so controversial. And, you know, I've been called a bigot for so long mm -hmm. that it's really, I, I don't think I've really um, uh, um, processed it yet or, you know, sort of it hasn't really sunk in as reality yet because it's so you know it's so beyond anything that I could have imagined happening to me but I I'm absolutely thrilled and, and, and what I'm thrilled about is the fact that this is for all the parents that found transgender trend which is um help them feel because the parents of course are called bigoted for not instantly affirming their daughter as their son I mean these parents have had nobody to turn to so they found transgender trend and spent sort of the first couple of years doing this on the phone to a lot of parents 
really, really distressed parents who were called bigots, who didn't have any anybody they could talk to because they'd be called transphobic. Um, and, and for those parents to be able to say, you know, to anybody who said, well, you know, Stephanie Davis arrived, she's just a transphobic bigot. Well, the she's got an award for services to children. So, yeah. or, a parent, or a parent challenging their child's school and the school saying, well, Stonewall says that Transgender Trends is a transphobic organization. They're a hate group. Well, the founder just got an award from the queen for services to children. So <laughs> it's just such a gift. And I, you know, for me, it, it's something for all of those parents and I'm so so delighted because it's vindication of them and all of all they have been calling for is the same as me which is the same standard of care for gender dysphoric kids as any other child accessing mental health services or the NHS and this is what the CAS interim report this was their conclusion these children are not getting, and I could see this, of course, you know, what other treatment, um, and particularly such invasive and life-changing medical treatment is given on the basis of a patient's self-diagnosis, often learned online. Doctors are normally so suspicious, they, they, you know, they're so irritated by patients who come in with, a, with an online self-diagnosis. And yet in this area, uniquely, even a child is capable of self-diagnosis and self-prescription. They know what they want. They know what they need, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. And, and, it, and it's like an affirmation and informed consent model, yeah. which, which we see nowhere else in, in, the, in the NHS. So parents of the most, you know, the most thoughtful parents have been the ones that have been penalised and, and judged as bigoted when they're only doing what any sensible parent would do, which is research the issue, think about it, and think about the best interests and the welfare of their own child. I do feel terrible for the parents. I t almost every day I have a conversation with a, a parent who's in a terrible position mm. and, and terrified of losing a child, either emotionally or legally, and feels kind of blackmailed into affirming and I really only know one person with a, a, a child like you were, who is just so distressed about puberty, but who is legit, you know, been living this way their whole lives. Um, the rest of them, you know, fit, fit the criteria for, what we're, for lack of a better term, calling rapid onset gender dysphoria, but they fit, you know, they're an uns, part of an unstudied, generally unstudied cohort. And um, it's really, it's really terror. It's a terrifying time to be a parent, even of a gender non-conforming kid, because mm. you, you have no control over, you know, at the, at the doctor, they kick you out of the room. And, you know, at school, they have guidelines that it's between them and the child, you know, and um, and when you object to that, you're told that parental rights is a smokescreen for bigotry, you know, instead of, no, actually we have the constitutional right to decide how to raise our kids and we all have the right to evaluate the evidence and the problem 
is that it's been the, the evidence has been coming from small groups from individuals who educate themselves and speak up like you and are going against what the behemoths are saying the, the grand institutions and it just gets the other thing that's hard about being a parent is that the information you're getting is goes against what the evidence reviews actually say mm-hmm. and um it's a it's a terrible position but then again you just got the British Empire Medal. There are um, more articles, even in places that have really sat down on the job, fell down on the job, like the New York Times. They're they're starting to wake up a little bit and think, oh, there's a better way to cover this issue. I think we're, I think we're seeing the beginning of an ideological shift and. And the evidence review, we're seeing Finland and Sweden do evidence reviews mm-hmm. and then say, oops, this is this is not supported and we have to do this another way. What's What would you like to see have happened when you imagine the future in which we are all properly educated about the issue? Because I think that's the biggest problem is it's hard to get, it's hard to get properly educated. Um, wh- what's... What's the ideal scenario? It's really, it, you know, it, it's difficult to say. We have we have to get back to reality. We owe that to children, you know, in particular, that we don't take children away from reality. That you know, I, and this goes for um, not just the treatment of children, but legislation. Um, you know, it, it, all sorts of policies that we're getting away from the reality of what a woman is. And we're using obfuscating language, which causes problems, um, particularly for women, particularly for girls in schools. Um, And I think that, yes, so we need to get back to um, recognizing that sex is a reality. I also think that actually the more extreme it has become, the the more change we're seeing. So in a way, I, I sort of knew that when we started having victories, the pushback would be even more extreme. And I think it has been. Um, but I think the, the more extreme it gets, the more people know about it and it, and it impacts on people's real lives, the greater the pushback will be. And you can't really have a movement that doesn't have public support and I think one big mistake, this, or, or what makes this, the trans movement different to other movements, is that right from the start, the mantra was no debate, because if you debate, you're debating trans lives. Um, and we've not seen that before. We've not seen a movement that's targeted children like this before either, you, you know, the very youngest children. Um, but we haven't seen a movement that is so hostile to any questioning and, and really hostile. I mean, you know, to the extent that you might lose your job or livelihood, you know, that if you, if you question it, uh, it's become I've, so I've entrenched <laughs> and you are called a bigot and you're called out and petitions are started against you and you're reported and you're, you're reput- they try and find everything they can in your background and in your reputation, you know, you know, defame you, libel you, all the rest of it. That's not actually the way to win hearts and minds. That might be the way to 
keep people silent out of fear. It's not a way to win hearts and minds. I think the gay rights movement really made an effort to talk and explain and um, win people's hearts and minds. And that's what did it for the gay rights movement. This movement has gone the opposite way. Now, I, so one thing that I started to say, when a movement um, does that, we may be worried, and I certainly am, about children being indoctrinated into this ideology in schools and being presented with gender identity ideology as fact uh, when it has no basis in science. And yet I also know that a lot of young people are so sick of it, gender, and know mm. that it's a load of rubbish, know that they can't say anything. Um, it's interesting to see what, which way that will go, but, but one of the mistakes I think that, that the movement has made is to sort of paint it as a youth movement and flatter young people into, you know, young people are so much more progressive and open about gender and fluid and all of these flattering things. And young people themselves, I think, have bought this and see it as a youth movement. But there is going to come a point where they wake up, and I think it's happening now, and realize that their teachers in schools are insisting on this and not allowing any disagreement of it. Mm. And what youth movement has ever been mandated by the teachers in school? And like every youth movement, it will end and something will replace it. Now, the, 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 the worrying thing here is because it's, L, you know, because the T is, is attached to the LGB, the LGB kids and communities will suffer as well as part, you know, as, as part of that package. Um, and we all, you know, already see, you know, if you, if you don't sort of go along with gender identity, you're seen as a, not just anti-trans, but anti-LGBT. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the way that language is used is very clever, but, but I do think that um, it is a trend and all trends end. And the problem is what we have. So we still have a lot of, I mean, I think that we're turning a tank around and that takes time, but we're, we're, we're doing it. Um, in fact, I think we've made the key steps to doing it in the UK in terms of health and education, but there's an awful lot of work to do. And one of the things is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In, in other words, not to throw the gay kids under the bus because we're challenging the idea of gender identity and we're pushing back against the bullying that has silenced us on this issue. And we're insisting on having debate about it. Um, but, uh, and I think that's, you know, what you're talking about in, happening in the States, I think it is much more, see, we have a left and right, it's not a party political issue. It's, I get everybody should be concerned about this. It's about reality. It's about children's bodies, you know, um, women's rights. But there's not a strong um, sort of fundamentalist right here that, that, that has real influence and like there is in the state, even though we're always accused by you know, being funded by the fundamentalist far right, you know. Um, and, and I think, um, so it, it's kind of easier in, in, in that sense that there isn't a huge political power. But the, the problem is, 
feminists in this country are called gender critical. And gender critical just means that you understand biology, basically. I mean, I don't call myself gender critical. I understand reality, I understand biology. Um, but that's how it's been with the Maya Forstater case that I'm sure you know about. Yeah. It's been established in law that gender critical beliefs are protected. What we're seeing in reality is that they, that they are inherently transphobic or treated as inherently transphobic, certainly in the workplace and, and in, in, in schools. But at least that's protected in law. Um, but um, the, so in the UK, I think it's far more established that, in fact, part of the reason people are worried about this is for the protection of gay and lesbian kids who are being told they're trans. And the two things are very separate. And um, there's a lot of, there's, there's, there's a big, as you said, left-wing women's movement. Um, whereas in the States, I think there is more of a, what's it called? There's a sort of gender movement, which is very sort of perhaps extreme right conservative where it is anti-gay rights, it is anti-women's rights. And those and trans rights are connected to those things. I can't remember what it's called, but it's not gender critical. It's gender something else. Um, and 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 so to separate. And I I think I would. I tend to speak on any platform, and we you know I think the, the, the time for sort of being a bit picky about people's other beliefs was over a long long time ago. Because the left, if the left doesn't touch it. Um, yeah. You've got to get it out there somehow, and I and I think the left really, really needs to send, stand up because they are playing into the far right taking this on, and they're creating that. I mean, it's that it, they really, really need to be, understand that this is a, um, a, a, a you know, to, to to even talk about it with some nuance rather than jumping on the bandwagon. I think that, yeah, all the left needs is some nuance because once you get nuance, you, you're allowed to put on your critical lens and, and mm, ask the important mm, questions like, mm, you know, what's happening and, and, and very simply who's being helped and who's being hurt and what data mm, do, what data we, do we have mm, about that? And then you realize we, we really know very little and, and you, you are right that when we leave this in, in the United States to the right to object to, they they are all they very well may also object to abortion rights to gay rights gay rights yeah you know, and and yeah. um and and have very traditional views of gender roles absolutely and, absolutely and, and, and I think that that's less likely to happen in the UK. There's not yeah. that strong divide or the strong sort of you know anti-abortion movement here. So I think we're less at risk of that, and I. Think, but you know, an awful lot of people believe in those really fixed traditional gender roles. Yeah, you know, there's nothing we can do about. Well, you know, we can we can educate kids, or we, you know, but but you know, people are entitled to their beliefs, and I really believe that. I don't, you know, you can have different beliefs to me in a, in other areas. If we're agreed on this, I have my line. I draw it when it feels appropriate to me. But generally, if you're if you're sort of fairly moderate and don't go to either extreme you know i i think that uh, everybody's entitled to freedom of belief freedom of speech and it doesn't matter if i'm you know really opposed to their other beliefs 
they have a right to hold them. That's right. You can think that that boys, you know, only boys should do sports and girls should just learn sewing. You can believe that. But if you have laws about that, then that's yeah, that's the problem. And if you teach that in the school, of course, then it comes down to who gets to decide what we teach, which is too big, too big a topic (laughs) for for today. Um, So I just. I'm just very so curious for my last question how it is that my my I wasn't going to ask this but I can't help it how is it that my book ended up in your photo shoot because I I often think I often think that people in some ways I was trying to appease a large group of people and in other ways I may have just sort of pissed off everybody equally by not quite taking a stand and not um, not diving into the research about medicalization and not, you know, accepting people who were saying, um, this is wonderful and, and liberating and I'm happy I did it. And I tried to just put it all there. I didn't put detransitioners because I was cautioned not to, and I wasn't brave enough. Um, and it, but yes. So I thought, Oh, aren't, aren't the people who've been, advocating and agitating, you know, for seven years about this kind of frustrated with a person who's just gently, gently pushing back and pussyfooting on it. So I just, I'm just, I mean, I'm so grateful to you for embracing it, but I am also like, don't you, um, aren't you you annoyed? (laughs) I think I'm I'm, I'm recommending a book full of gender woo-woo. Yeah, yeah. Not full full of it, but some of it's, it's in there. Mm-hmm. It was funny. So that so it was the press association that came around, and um, so they send news stories to all the media, all the media outlets. So they, you know, it meant we didn't have to do a press release about it. <laughs> 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 touch up. And nice. um, and it was it was really funny that they, they, it was a lovely sunny day, and and he said, Look, let's go out in the garden. He took some videos of me walking outside into the garden. And I had my coffee there and, and he said, maybe you could just come and sit at the table and read a book. And I literally, I looked through my books and thought, this is the one. And, and it, it's slightly ironic because I thought Tomboy was a great, was a good title to use, even though I disagree with that word. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I don't mind it. I don't, you know, I don't really, I'm quite, but I just, um, yeah, like I said, I, I, I see it as a sort of historical d- document that sort of lays out the, so interesting how these terms are used and and that actually the fact the fact that you're a fence sitter in this book um makes it quite a useful book like you it's not a polemic it's not it's not a book that uh tells the reader what to think and i think any discerning reader would 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 read it and come away with tomboy trans boy non-binary why do we need all these labels about girls who are just behaving normally so that which is what I took from it and I'm not a uh, you know I, I I quite like books that don't tell me what to think actually and I always read everything around a subject so it doesn't jar for me that there is gender stuff in there because I'm very used to reading about it uh-huh. it's 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 the fact that it's there um, with, with no sort of um, uh, um, angle, no angle. <laughs> I yeah. like that because, <laughs> because it, it, it means that I can go in there and read it. Or I do recommend it. I think it's a really, really interesting 
sort of historical analysis. It taught me a lot that I didn't know about tomboys and the development of that term and, and, and the ideas about girls. So, yeah, I think it's a really useful book. And I'm not saying um, that I agree with the gender stuff, of course, but, but, but the book leaves me free to do the analysis myself. And I really like that. So, yeah, it just, it just sort of worked uh, in, in some ways rightly, in some ways kind of ironically, but it, it kind of worked. I just felt it would be a great book to, to have in the picture. And, you know, and I love your writing and I knew that you'd moved on since then, but I kind of thought, you know, do I have, do, do I have material girls by Kathleen Stock? Do I have trans by Helen Joyce? Do I, Tomboy, that's the one. <laughs> right. It's it's easier for the public to swallow, which honestly, yeah, which yeah. honestly was the point, right? To not preach to it the was converted. A, it was a good visual cue. For yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you for including it. Congratulations on the incredible honor. And, thank you. And and thank you so much for doing this interview with me. It was really interesting, and I think you're. Your, your message about nonconformity, but also your living example of how it can stay with you, but not define you. And also you can get through the hard times and come out on the other side. Yeah, do you know, it, it, it's the one thing really that makes me feel, yeah, I've got an authority to speak on this issue. I'm one of the ones who desisted like most do. So therefore I'm informed about that, you know, children and young, you know, adolescent girls, I'm informed. I grew out of it. It was a difficult journey, but I have um, knowledge to share. And so, so yeah, I think, um, uh, yes, that gives me the authority to speak on this issue. What? I, I promise, I, I promise this will be the last question, but yeah. What's your advice for a let's say a 13 year old girl who had a childhood like yours, extremely masculine and really, really suffering, going through puberty and suffering and hating it and hating mm. her body and, um, you know, mm. very, very comfortable in the male gender role, whatever that is, and um, really, socially transitioned, very comfortable, really helps, but, you know, where the parents don't want to medicate. Now, what do you, what do you say? The parents have the places to go, but what do you say to the child as someone who went through that? Gosh, I would say, I would say, um, I wouldn't make too big a deal of it. I would say, you know, it, it can be tough yeah you know I, I'd acknowledge it I would um try you know if if I if like if I was anti-Stephanie outside the family or if I was the parent I you know I'd, I'd probably say yeah you know it, it it can be shit can't it yeah this time of life um gets better and 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 and, and um you kind of earn adulthood. You know, there's a point to this, a bit like childbirth. <laughs> it's like, there's a point to this pain. You know, you, 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 what you earn at the end of it 
It's like, you know, you're tough, you'll get through it. Sort of messages like that that are kind of um, quite matter of fact, like, yeah, this is life it's without minimising it, but, but, but being um, giving the message that, yes, it actually this is something that's part of the human condition. And particularly at this age, this is really part of the adolescent condition that you're going through. It's kind of normal, but without without lecturing. So it's a kind of, you know, acknowledgement and understanding without taking it on and making it bigger than it is or minimising it. Mm. Well, that's, that's the kind of, yeah, that's the kind of attitude. Because I think it's more your attitude towards it. I think the biggest thing for teenagers is trust. If you're communicating trust, which is not saying directly, I know you're going to get through this, you're tough enough, you're not laying it on because that actually communicates lack of trust. You need such a lot of reassurance. It's your kind of matter of fact, yeah, it, it, it's really tough, isn't it? And and like people struggle with this. It, it's a, you know, it's a tough time. But what you gain from it, you know, you know so, so give the message that it's it, it it's actually not unusual. You're not you're not that special actually. <laughs> But at the same time as 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 um um yeah it's a kind of kind of um this is sort of matter, that matter of fact way of approaching it communicates but I trust you'll deal with it I trust you'll be okay it's a, it's a kind of what it's what I call a goes without saying voice mm. but you know you know we'll get through it you know, and, and it's kind of goes without saying, of course you will. And, and, and that's communicates. I, I trust you. I trust that you're tough enough. I trust that you're strong enough. I don't think you are particularly weak and vulnerable and need lots of reassurance. Mm. So, that's a, you know, I talk about attitude more than actual words I would use because they'd change, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to use that in my own parenting in all kinds of ways now. So thank you <laughs> for that you're lesson. Welcome. <laughs> Is there anything you wanted to add before we? Oh, just that I'm very honoured that I've done your first podcast. <laughs> I think.